Green Future Growers, welcome to Season 3. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes for free or follow on your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Hey, listeners, are you wondering how you can grow your own healthy and nutritious food with confidence? Have you been frustrated as a gardener? Does the thought of weeding make your back ache? Have you tried to grow a garden before and found you can't even keep a plant alive? Does the cost of organic produce in the store make you cringe, but the thought of bugs in your garden make your skin crawl? Well, we have the answer for you. Freegardencourse.com. It is so easy. You enter your email. You will watch a video right there. You can get my Organic Oasis checklist, our Essential Tools checklist. It all shows up right on the thank you page, freegardencourse.com. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. I have an amazing guest on the line. He um, wrote a fantastic book you're going to love, The Modern Homestead Garden Gary Polarchik, Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard. I just love so many things about it, and I know he's going to drop tons of golden seeds for you today. So um, down in Maryland, here's Gary Polarchik. Thanks for joining our show, Gary. It's very good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about yourself? And this isn't your first book, right? This, This is actually my first book. I've been gardening for for forever it feels like and I've had a YouTube channel for maybe 12 years or so but I finally just put the book together um last year and you know I'm I'm proud of it I like the way that it turned out I just want to say I have my daughter's dog here so if you hear some crazy barking or something just ignore that okay my dog's laying behind me too Uh, he just came down so yeah I've been you know for Really, the last, I would kind of start backwards. I just moved to two acres about two years ago and kind of took all my experience before then and kind of built the homestead that I wanted. You know, prior to that, I lived in the suburbs, gardened there for 15 years and just had this passion for gardening that's, um, that I think is just wonderful. It gives me purpose every day. And it's really what I do. I was a mental health therapist for probably 15, 20 years, been in mental health for 30 years, but uh, retired from that in June. And now I'm just working on the garden. Well, that's probably a completely different conversation, but I feel like, Gary, we need mental health more than ever right now. Mm -hmm. But you know what? There's a lot of garden therapy and mental health in the garden. So maybe you're just going to take all this knowledge and and shift it there and um you know i do always like to start the show asking about your very first gardening experience and you are the master storyteller like i just love the story you wrote about in the beginning of the book so why don't you is that like who you're you were very first like i always ask who were you with what did you grow like what do you remember your very first garden experience Yeah, so it was my grandfather. And it's part, you know, and and funny you mentioned, I I think mental health and gardening go together. Just a quick short note. Gardening gives you just a wonderful structure and routine that's good for the mind, good for the soul. And a lot of people don't know about gardening because they never learned how to do it or they just were never exposed to it. I was lucky enough 
you know, and I write about it in the beginning of the book, um, that my grandfather is, is my fondest memory of gardening. He ignited the passion. He taught me how to garden. And he would just come over with a, you know, brown bag full of tomatoes. Back then, they came in six packs of, you know, tomato plants, pepper plants. And I remember still when he would open that bag, I could smell the tomato plants. He'd have a, a can of lime with him that he would call sweetener. And he would just show me how to plant. Now, he, he wasn't really teaching me. It wasn't instructional. It was just doing something with my grandfather. But I learned all the basics early. I think it was maybe first grade or second grade. I can't remember. And it just stuck with me. Kind of faded out in the later teens, came back when I got married. But it was always present in you know, I, that experience is just kind of burned into to who I am. Now, how come he came over to your place? Did he have a garden or like, mm-hmm. how did oh, that I, work? So, uh, you know, actually you just jarred another memory. Going over to his house, seeing my grandmother and, and him, he lived um, in Camden, New Jersey. And the only reason I mention that is they had very sandy soil. So I would go over there. He had a garden along his fence, starting with a fig tree, and then he would just work its way down of different plants. I remember a single peach tree. So that exposure was there too, getting to see um, everything that he would grow. And you know, we would when we would go over there, we'd have bags of figs, we'd have you know tons of zucchini, everything that happens in a garden. And that was actually just a regular part of my life. I, and that allowed me to realize. And I think this is an issue with a lot of kids sometimes is that groceries, the the vegetables don't come from a grocery store. I got to learn where they came from, how they grew, what went into it. And I think a lot of people just aren't exposed to that for no other reason, because they just haven't had that opportunity. So they think stuff comes from the store. They come, you know, from a market or something like that. Or even like they might realize like the pro, but maybe they just think it just comes from farms and don't realize how -hmm. much you can grow in a small space in your own yard. And hopefully, you know, I'm an elementary teacher by trade. You know, I see more gardens and more schools, but we, you know, we still haven't even made a slight dent. So, uh, in that, so. Sure. So do you want to tell us about something that grew well last year after you finally got to really focus on your garden now? I have been trying to go. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, peppers in Maryland seem to do well. Very few diseases. Um, I put two plants next to each other, kind of in one planting hole, almost get double the yield. So they grew extremely well because I got to prep the soil and, and put more time with them. But the, the, <laughs> the thing that I'm kind of most proud of is the watermelon radish, which if you're not familiar with it, has the white outside and this you know, beautiful pink inside. It looks like a watermelon. I love those. Yeah, they're wonderful. They taste great. They look wonderful. I've been trying to grow those probably 10 years and could never get anything more than leaves. And this year, I finally got large size watermelon radishes, um, took more pictures than I needed and put them on Instagram. But I was, I was, you know, proud of those. So what do you think the secret was? Because like 10 years, man, you have some persistence. And they are hard to grow. I found, you know, a lot of people um, agree with this. Some people say, hey, you can fertilize 
like crazy and they do fine. For whatever reason, I had trouble with radishes in general. And then I cut back on nitrogen, little to no nitrogen, more compost, more neglect. And I was able to grow the um, regular radishes to full size. And they were a struggle a little bit because I think I was overfeeding them or maybe the soil here just had more nitrogen or whatever. But with the, with the watermelon radishes, what I found was no fertilizer, no care, loose soil, some of my compost that I started making, which is another big thing, moving to two acres, I finally can make all the compost I need, which is wonderful. But just giving them compost and letting them go, let them do their thing. I also grew them from the uh, summer, like August into the colder weather. And I think that made a big difference. Here in Maryland, when we were growing from the spring into the summer, sometimes it gets hot too fast and I think it messes up things. But for whatever reason, they worked out really well. Cool. Well, those are all great things to know. Um, so maybe I'll have to try that, put them in for like a fall crop. One of the things I learned recently was that um, you can saute radishes. Now, I don't know if I would saute those watermelon ones because they just are so good. But like while I'm waiting for my beets to come up to saute radishes with like kale and Swiss chard, oh, they, that is such a good meal. That is delicious. Um, and then uh, I was, when I was reading your book this morning, I realized like one of the big learning curves I had last year was like, everyone's gonna laugh. My husband probably will laugh is like, I don't know why. I always thought because we put the compost in before we planted everything, that was all you had to do. And last year, my zinnias were just like, they just weren't. And I, I almost felt like as I was adding the compost to them, they were like perking up and smiling at me. Like literally as I went down the bed and like, it had never occurred to me to actually like feed my beds while they were growing, which my husband is always like, you need to put some compost on. Like, I think I just thought he was saying it for most, but then we also have the problem of like, we were literally fighting over the compost last year. Cause I put some on this new bed for th that. I was getting ready for this year where I put like the cardboard down and the mulch and then I was like, can I use this compost? And he was like, sure. And he didn't realize I was going to use mm -hmm. all of it on that one bed. And he wanted me to add it to. And then we were like all the rest of the summer. It was like that compost was supposed to go to the carrots and the beets in this <laughs> bed over here. And right. But yeah, having enough of your own compost is always a challenge. But oh, just golden seeds, Gary. So Tell us about something that maybe didn't go the way you thought it was. And if 10 years of growing watermelon radishes, like you are just persistent. This is awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of alluded to it. So part of, I think, the success in failures, and I just say even in a failure, your garden still gives back to you. So you still end up with produce. So you can mess up and your garden will still produce something. Right. Yeah. It's really figuring out the seasons. So last year, what didn't do well were um, broccoli and cauliflower, you know, because they you want them, to, their flower head to stay nice and tight and you harvest a big, you know, head of broccoli or head of cauliflower. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been trying to grow that again, you know, get it out there late March, early April. Um, they can take a frost, so you're not so worried about that. But the warm weather would come so fast that the 
broccoli heads would begin to flower. They would loosen up or that white butterfly that flies around would come in really quickly and start laying eggs at the cabbage loop or cabbage worm. So I struggled with that again and again learned the best thing to do is I'm going to grow my cool weather crops, the kales, the cauliflowers, um, broccolis, all in August because the broccoli overwintered in some parts of my garden, even in deep freezes, and I'm getting the best broccoli heads right now. So, you know, kind of growing how your seasons are um, makes a big difference or around your insect patterns or disease patterns makes a big difference too. You don't have to do just cool weather stuff in the spring, you know, summer stuff in the summer, you can kind of push it either way if you need to. That is so true. And I think, so we are in Northwest Montana and I have struggled with that fall crop of broccoli. And last year, even, what did I do? I started the broccoli seeds indoors in June. So I was able to put them in the bed in August. And they just, they just, for us here, it just, it, my husband's like, you're not going to get fall broccoli, but he, he is very successful at growing broccoli. Like here, I think it does just work better in the spring because they like yeah, for that you guys. cooler, but we did, mm -hmm. we didn't get cauliflowers or a lot of broccoli last year compared to just in general, but my fall crop, like they never got over six inches and then it froze. Like, I think part of the problem was in August, they got eaten by so many bugs. Like they were really nice right. looking six inch plants. But then when I put them out and now maybe if I would have covered them with row cover or I don't know. Anyway, Gary, what, uh, what are you excited to do different this summer? Well, speaking of bugs, uh, my garden is 95% organic almost a hundred. Um, that includes using neem oil, peppermint oil, all kinds of organic sprays. But with a bigger garden, I'm just tired of spraying all the time. They work, they're effective. What I'm doing this year is I'm bringing in the um, agricultural fabric or the insect netting. And I'm actually working on a stylish way, let's say, to cover my leafy greens, the kales, everything that we were just talking about in other plants so that I have to spray less. Um, the bugs aren't really a factor because they get really bad here. And I just don't want to have to spray every 10 days or so um, from June really into August, even with the organic sprays. So I'm going to try and really use that agricultural fabric to target the plants that are most affected by insects and pests and, and see how well that works. But what did you say in the beginning about doing it like in a, because that's what I'm worried about is going to look really ugly. Like I'm going to do the ag fabric or the row mm -hmm. cover over my kale. Like Lisa Ziegler was like, Jackie, when you plant the kale seeds in the ground, put the fabric over it, cover it, seal it. Mm -hmm. The water will come through, the sunlight will come through, but do not let those moths on there. But yep. like you, I'm like, oh, that's going to look so ugly. <laughs> like, uh, I, what are you going to do to make it look pretty? So I am trying just to design a frame that just doesn't look like fabric is laying willy-nilly all over the place. So, you know, 
that's the challenge. I, I just, I don't like seeing the white fabric. However, I'd like it even less when it's like blowing and flapping and it's all uneven and stuff like that. So I'm actually working on a, a couple frame designs to keep it tight um, and look good. The other thing now is I don't want to have to spend a lot of time unfastening and lifting and moving. So I'm trying to strike the balance between functional and attractive. And to answer your question better, I haven't gotten there yet, but I have given in to the ag fabric is the way to go. And, you know, maybe I'll, I'll get used to the look a little bit. I'm actually using, with the locusts coming, I had to buy um, a bunch of ag fabric for my fruit trees because I started a little orchard here. And they come ready to be pulled over a tree. And they can be anywhere from four feet wide to, to four feet high or six feet wide to six feet high. And I'm using them in a garden now to cover up different um, raised beds, fabric pots. And they look pretty nice because they're already cylindrical. You can kind of just, you know, put your stakes in and just drop it over there. So that might work too, just, you know, as a side note. You know what I saw yesterday? I was looking at A.M. Leonard's tool site and they had like this clearance thing. And they had these burlap sandbags on clearance. And I thought... Now, burlaps, because I remember when I talked to Mandy Girth about their, she was telling me how they bought the sandbags to go with the tarp to cover the, you know, the field, because they have so much wind to keep the tarp down while they're like doing, you know, weed suppression or whatever before they could mm -hmm. plant. And I thought, now, burlap sandbags wouldn't be as ugly around the edge, so... I love yeah. all of this because it is to me like that's why I'm like more the organic oasis than just like organic vegetables because to me right. it's like you're planning a place to hang out and like my husband plants the mini farm which you know doesn't have any chairs in it it's pure vegetable mm -hmm. production and I've been taking over the garden beds more that are close to the house which is where we hang out where company comes where you know we sit and so I, I i'm more plus i like to paint down there so right. i love the way you're talking about the aesthetics of it all i agree with you that's that's what my garden is too it, it produces but i love just wandering through it it has a chair out there things to look at and it's close to where we sit and you know so i've kind of integrated that as an outdoor room with function and i want it to be attractive and your and your pictures are just lovely in your book. You really did a nice job with the layout and the close-ups and like everything is just really easy to see. You've done a really nice job there of and uh and that's important. Our garden is at the bottom of a hill. <laughs> and that's like something I struggle with a lot because I'll be like, oh, I forgot to pick the salad. And then I end up sometimes like I'm putting dinner on the table and I end up not even eating the salad that night. Or like Mike will be like, the radishes are ready. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not running down there to just get a radish. Plus that hill is just like, and then he even like the mini farms down the hill and across the road. And um, like if he forgets the shovel or like I want to have two wheelbarrows, one here and one down there and a broad fork for here we got two broad forks this year because i feel right. like he as he gets older we can't waste the energy he has just walking back and forth because he grows like i barely have to go to the produce aisle from august to november anymore and like he grew all our potatoes this year we didn't have to buy any potatoes 
And like he told me, we'll probably have potatoes in June coming up from uh, volunteers. And we have enough to get right to the end of May. So um, going to be, you know, we're getting just more self-sufficient. We've been right. working our, our homestead. I mean, we'll be married 28 years this year. So that's wonderful. Uh, it's been a, a long journey. Anyway, Gary, we are already at getting to the root of things. So do you have an activity that's like something you have to kind of force yourself to get out there and do? Sounds like spring. But maybe so, yeah, the, I know I had to think on that question because most of the stuff I don't mind. What I don't like is I grow a lot of seeds indoors. And when you grow them indoors, they have no exposure to the sun, the UV, the ultraviolet rays of the sun, the wind, or anything like that. So you have to acclimate them to the outdoors slowly in some capacity, or in one day, all your hard work will be destroyed yes. by the sun. I just, I don't like that process of having to bring things in and out and, and all that. I don't have a greenhouse yet to grow in. Um, I'm trying to figure out the best place for that. Um, but most of us don't have a greenhouse. Yes. Uh, so I don't like the acclimation process and the frost here, like it's going to be 45 degree nights for the next two weeks, 60 degree days. And then we get hit with frost maybe once or twice in a week, but the frost can come anytime here. And I just, I don't like having a, I always try and push to get my tomatoes out early, different plants out early and just having to kind of manage around those frost periods. Probably what I dislike the most. Hey, do you want to talk about, in your book, you talk about people planting, was it like six different types of tomatoes the first year, like a cherry and a determinant? And, and do you want to talk about that for a sec? Yeah, so I get asked, all, I mean, uh, the big umbrella is what I hope through my book and my YouTube channel and, you know, at the, the nonprofit farm I work at or volunteer at is just to get people gardening and enjoy it. And the question I always get are like, you know, when do I water? When do I plant? What do I plant? How many tomatoes do I want? What kind of, and it gets overwhelming and it's because people just don't know, they'll overwhelm themselves. So what I thought would be is really is just to look at, to answer that question. When a person goes to figure out what do they want to grow tomato wise, let's give them a sample of the, you know, big one pounders two pounders where you can brag with a to a neighbor or something like that. And then you have your slicers and your cherry tomatoes, um, you know, all which kind of mature at different times. But I figured that was just kind of the best way to say, here's your framework, get them in the ground and, and enjoy what comes of it. And then people, once they get started, they can kind of, you know, um, select what they like the best and, and plant more of those. Cool. Uh, I get I, maybe it's just because tomatoes are so hard here. Like my my new vegetable gardener challenge is like lettuce, peas, carrots, and a cherry tomato because I feel like cherry tomatoes are always successful. Now, of course, we're in Northwest Montana. I'm surprised you can get a frost. We can get a frost almost every day of the year too. I was just telling my mom, I'm like, we had a year where August 8th, it just knocked out, you know, all of Mike's green beans, like everything. We had a hard enough frost to, you know, just, it, there's like the last two weeks in July, maybe you can call safe, but the rest of the year, it's usually, and it always makes me laugh because Mike has like this automatic where he'll jump up at three in the morning and be like, 
come on, we got to go cover all the beds. And we're down there with like every sheet. And because sometimes you'll get, you know, a frost that like that will do it. You know, we'll take like every spare blanket and piece of plastic and just try to cover the plants, um, you know, for a light frost. But I'm surprised in Maryland, you can get a frost that'll kill something you know and then i always talk about i never put basil out usually although mm -hmm. i am going basil crazy this year more for bringing in um beneficial insects somebody told me that they're really pretty um filler in bouquets people love right. the smell of basil so i'm gonna try it i'm not uh growing it as much for food as just to encourage mm -hmm. Uh, beneficials to eat the aphids because Mike frequently has an aphid problem. Yeah, basil's um, great for that. So, so is cilantro if that grows. And cilantro is winter. Um, oh, I struggle with cilantro. Oh no. What I, happens? I don't know what. It just bolts on me or it doesn't grow at all. It doesn't germinate. Like I cannot get cilantro. And and I have heard from people that it does bolt a lot and you're, you know, you just got to pick it right away and then put like new seeds and do like more of the succession, which is not right. my, but yeah, cilantro, which is like one of my favorites. I mean, I buy cilantro every week. It is a staple mm -hmm. in my grocery store. And maybe now that you've said you've been trying to grow watermelon radishes for 10 years, I <laughs> I might become more persistent in growing it because i have you know like herbs are you know i love growing oregano um i always have basil i love growing tarragon sage rosemary right. is another one i struggle with lavender i struggle with um but there are lots of herbs that do grow well but cilantro i have not had any luck with for some reason myself um what was I going to say? My my actual goal this year is as many sunflowers, marigolds, zinnias, and snapdragons as I can put in. And I'm already ahead of the game. My husband already this morning was like, what are you going to do with all these extra snapdragons? Like we have, I think, two full trays, like 72 for us. <laughs> and then there's this sure. cup that needs transplanted. I'm like, well, maybe I can take them and sell them for 50 cents somewhere. <laughs> yeah, they're and beautiful. Just, or give them away. Like, I'm trying to convince myself I'm going to go do book talks. And I'm like, I can just give them away, like, put them in milk mm -hmm. cartons from school or something and be like, here's a Snapdragon for your garden. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I think that's wonderful. Carrie, on the flip side, what's your favorite thing to do in the garden? So I think it goes back to just watching my grandfather plant and, you know, planting stuff with him. I just like seed starting, planting transplants, watching stuff grow. That's kind of why I want to keep, you know, my garden space sort of that kind of oasis that, you know, you talked about. I just love watching stuff grow. So whenever I can put in seeds or transplants, I probably like that process even more than harvesting and eating the, the production that comes out of the garden. There's just something about watching sort of what I actually consider modern day miracle that I can take a handful of seeds and populate my entire garden with all of the stuff. I mean, people don't always look at it that way, but I mean, where else can you kind of get something that is, you know, almost as small as the pin uh, or the head of a pencil point and grow, you know, a two foot 
basil plant or something like that. I mean, it's just amazing. So I just like that process. I mean, just planting and growing and watching it grow. Oh, it is. I am always fascinated by what my husband does. I'm like, I can't believe you do all this. My big struggle is always like the patience. Like you guys both have a lot more persistence and patience than I do. I'm always like, oh, this is taking so long. But, and the maintenance, which it sounds like is not your favorite part either. Right. <laughs> uh, what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? So the advice I give and the advice that I got was to get started. Don't over rely on thinking you need to know everything about gardening before you actually um, get some containers, dig a hole, um, and just basically get dirty. The best way to learn is to actually have sort of your experiment going on of planting while you're reading, while you're learning, you know, if you're watching YouTube videos or something like that. And probably the most underrated piece of advice is to keep a journal, to keep a journal. Um, you know, somebody told me a long, long time ago, I don't even remember who, and write down when diseases show up, insects show up, um, write down problems that happen because it's like dinner. You remember what you had for dinner while you're eating it, but two days later you say, what did you have for dinner? Nobody can remember, at least, <laughs> at least I can't. So if you go back to your journal, you know when to be start preventive spraying because you know when that insect shows up or when that disease shows up. Or you jot down, you know, the tomato plant that did really well and then you have the variety. So if you use a journal in the off season when you're not gardening, you can kind of collect all that information and use it as a to kind of build a plan for the next season so that you're more successful. Oh my gosh, that is so true. Hey, I wanted to ask you, what are you spraying the peppermint? oil on my listeners are probably like what's he doing with that so peppermint oil i found well it does a couple things it does mask the scent of the plants so like if you ever wonder how different insects find plants sometimes you know good insects find stuff from the color of the flowers um, all that kind of stuff but sometimes when a plant uh, breaks or you're cutting it or you're trimming it, you know, it, it lets out uh, pheromones or it lets out an odor. Some insects can find that. They, they smell a damaged plant, they show up. So peppermint oil does help mask the scents of your plants, which doesn't stop insects from coming. I always say it kind of manages it down. It makes it, um, it just, you have less of a problem. You know, it's not, not that you can prevent insects from coming, but you can manage it so that you still get production and they don't kill off your plants. The other thing that I found that it works really well for is spraying the undersides of, of bean leaves and cucumber leaves. And it does lots of great work on repelling spider mites. And I had an issue with, with that because they start in lower parts of your bean leaves and your cucumber plants, depending on what zone you're in. And the peppermint oil has really fixed that for me. And so I just do it regularly. And it smells wonderful in the garden. So what do you do? Put like a tablespoon in a gallon of water and squirt it from a spray bottle? Yeah, pretty much. I use, um, I actually, I think that recipe, I believe is in the book. So I have this, the sprayer stuff in the books. Um, the recipe's in the book, but a one gallon okay. sprayer, one gallon of water. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think the peppermint oil is just one or two teaspoons of peppermint oil. And then a teaspoon of soap, if you're using the soaps that are more like a detergent that are a little bit harsher, well, or a tablespoon of, is it, um, 
Castile? What I, I can't, I think that the, the cleanest one. Yeah, something like that. That's just a clean, pure soap. You could use a tablespoon of that because you need the soap to mix the oil through the water. And then you just walk through the garden with the sprayer, spray the undersides of the leaves, you know, once a week or so. And just think about, you know, if you kind of breathe in peppermint oil, you, you can sometimes feel the fumes in your nose and in your eyes. Well, just imagine that sitting on a little tiny spider mite. It irritates them, um, bothers them, and it, it really helps the plants. Hmm. Cool. Well, I think that's going to be a solution for a lot of listeners because absolutely like the number one question I get is what do I do about pests and bugs? So mm -hmm. you are just dropping tons of golden seeds and answers for people and make sure you get his book and check out his YouTube videos uh, for more answers, listeners. So Gary, what's your favorite tool? Like if you had to move and can only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? Well, I thought actually that was a good question too because I thought about that a lot. You know, you need your standard sets of tools, but you know, give me a shovel and I'm good to go. Um, I'm always experimenting, always learning. And this may not technically be a tool, but at least in our zone, because like I was saying, we get frost up to May 15th um, and then it's a great, growing period and I can extend the season. I've been buying six foot pieces, six foot um, long, uh, 24, 26 inches wide of corrugated polycarbonate or just clear plastic. You can find them at different stores. And I've been making mini cold frames all over the place for the spring. Um, I'm gonna be growing in them later into the season. It kind of creates like this mini, um, you know, yep. tunnel and it's just a great tool for me to start early, extend the season, and I don't, I don't think I would not use them now that I discovered them year after year. So what are you using for like the framework? Like my husband's used like PVC pipe in the past mm -hmm. or something lightweight to put the plastic, attached plastic to. Right. So well, like I... I have videos on it on my YouTube channel, The Rusted Garden. So people need to see it visually. Oh, I was going to say that. The Rusted Garden, R-U-S-T-E-D. Where'd right. you get that name from? Uh, <laughs> I, I can't say that I'm lazy because I work hard, but if I'm working with a tool and I'm done, I drop it, it rusts, and I have rusted tools all over the place. And it sort of became a joke years and years and years ago and that's what I decided to call the channel the rusted garden because of the rusting tools and I also like old worn tools so sometimes I'll just buy rusted shovels and rakes and you know display them in certain ways and stuff like that um, mm, and cool garden art do you ever oil your tools? I worked, I was a landscaper one summer in college and we like had to oil the tools at night at least once a week, if not every night. <laughs> I don't. I I pretty much, you know, buy them and use them. And when they don't, when I can't use them anymore, it's time for another one. Yeah. Hey, what was your, did you say there was like a set of tools you feel like, like, is there a, a set that you feel like people, you know, are more important than others or like every garden needs? Um, I, I mean, now that I've compost, a pitchfork for moving compost, I never needed that before, you know, some, some sort of tined fork because 
a shovel won't dig into a compost pile or it's a lot of work. Yeah. So you definitely need that for uh, moving hay or your grass piles or your leaf, leaf piles, your compost mulch. piles. Mulch, yep, yeah, for sure, which I'm doing. Oh, by the way, like this is, I got, if you need mulch, um, I'm not affiliated with them, but Chip Drop is a great way to get mulch delivered to you. Um, it's not, it is free if they want to bring it to you, but I got probably like 60 yards of chips to mulch um, for like $40. So that's a, a great way for people to save money if they need to mulch out their areas. Is it like chip, like C-H-I-P drop, D-R-O-P? Yep, chipdrop.com. And basically what they do is they're a service for all the landscaping companies and tree companies around. So instead of the tree companies having to pay to dump whatever they tear down on properties, like at a landfill or something, they'll, they look at chip drop and they divert their, their chips, their mulch to your driveway. Um, and the competition's kind of high. So if you, if you don't say you'll give them like $20 or $40, there's always somebody doing that. But even at $40 for a huge, you know, 10, 20 yards of material is, is really inexpensive. It's real easy to sign up for too if you go to chip drop. I'm nodding my head. And Nicole Masters, who wrote, um, oh my gosh, am I blinking on the name of her book? She's like a soil expert, talks about the importance of wood chips in your, uh, mm -hmm. how that can really help your garden too. So awesome source for that for people. Now, one thing I'm just going to really quick, like my husband's really picky about, he doesn't want wood chips like from our firewood pile because they're a pine Bark such listeners, make sure you know what wood chip. And I know Nicole talks about, I think, is it like white trees or like light, like probably what you have in Maryland more than what we mm -hmm. have in our Montana forest here. So just so listeners know, if you are a local Montana person listening right now, the wood chips from your, which like my husband, I go back and forth because I'm like, well, under the tree, you know, where he's raked it all up, the grass is growing back. I don't know. Right. Anyway, but he's worried that it's too piney. And, and it, it seems like I've talked to a few people that are like, yeah, no, you don't want those wood chips. So, um, how about a favorite recipe? What do you like to eat or cook from the garden, Gary? Uh, my favorite thing um, is that first bowl of tomato, cucumber, onion salad from the garden. You know, your own tomatoes, your own onions, your own cucumbers, uh, olive oil, some red wine vinegar, maybe some garlic powder or garlic if you have it. That's what I always look forward to. It's really simple and, you know, that's my favorite dish filled with, you know, childhood memories. I also like making sauce. Like I make tons and tons of tomato sauce. Sometimes I'm growing 40, 60 tomato plants and I just make sauce and freeze it, in, you know, different ways. But in that sauce, I will put in eggplant, um, zucchini, squash, whatever other vegetables are ready to, even leafy greens, and just make different sauces, sauce bases for, you know, pasta dishes or um, chicken parmesan or eggplant parmesan or something like that. And that's what I have most fun with. One of the things I'm going to try to do more this year is is formally learn how to can things you know i do a thing with you know 50 percent white vinegar or you know jarring kind of that i refrigerate but i'd like to get to the point where i uh, kind of master canning and jarring and, and can store stuff in in my cabinets 
Well, one big mistake I made last year, because last year was like really the first year where we got tomatoes to ripen on the vine, and I was all excited, and Mike was going to can them because he's good at canning, is you have to take the skins off the tomatoes. And so I had it all ready, and I'm like, all right, here we go. And he's like, all right, where's the recipe? And I get the recipe out, and it's like, you can't leave the skins on because like they something about the bacteria and the ph like it will literally like spoil you can't i guess like the science of it you can't can tomatoes with the skins on oh that's just a little little tip that i didn't know i was all excited so the one lucky thing was we did buy a free we were able to get a chest freezer last year right um so i just ended up freezing it but oh my gosh it was so amazing to to can my own tomato sauce and my own salsa last year now we had a very strange year where one we got no rain from july 26th to october 15th not a drop um but also we got our first hard freeze september 8th but then for some reason it killed all the greens on the tomatoes and I thought they were done and gone and they were going to be all mushy, but they kept growing. They kept turning red. They kept ripening. And so I was able to make a batch of tomato sauce and two weeks later, make another batch and two weeks later, make another batch. And that instead of like having to harvest them all, bringing the boxes, green tomatoes, them getting mushy and understand throwing most of them away, right. having them turn ripe on the vine. So I don't know if we'll be able to do that again, if our weather is changing that much what'll happen but oh my goodness yes but i do have a quick question like Uh if you're putting eggplant in your tomato sauce does it not because people have asked me and i even told mike should we even grow eggplants anymore like we don't they're taking up space and like i make like one batch of parmesan and that's about all i like to eat from eggplants like do they make your tomato sauce like watery like what do you do the eggplants to make like a tomato eggplant sauce you can freeze so i actually just simmer it longer so it 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 will thicken up um but i found they're kind of kind of dry anyway so they tend to thicken it up a little a little more in my opinion um i do peel them you know you don't want the peel in there and if the eggplant itself got to a larger size i do core out the seeds because the seeds are a little bit better um can be a little bit bitter uh, but the flesh, I, I like that flavor and found that it kind of, it helps out the sauce. It does change the texture. So like, you know, you have the, your pure tomato sauce and stuff like that. Um, and then you, I have my tomato vegetable sauce is what I call it. Um, same thing with the squash and zucchini. If I get a squash plant or a squash or a zucchini that overgrows, peel it, core out the seeds. You don't want that in your sauce. And then I throw it in there. And because I'm not canning or jarring, which I appreciate your tip on that with the with the um, skins, um, I just use a hand blender, an immersion blender, and just puree it down with the skins on it. I don't take the seeds out of the tomato plant, but I do freeze it, like you were saying, and it's absolutely delicious. Well, that's exactly what I'm doing wrong. I never peel anything, and I would never think of taking the seeds out from the inside. So two secrets right there. Awesome uh how about a favorite internet resource where do you find yourself surfing on the web so i don't have a specific source i go to what i like finding on the internet is actual research 
like I've done videos and I, I can't remember if I put this one in the book or not, but I've talked about using aspirin on your tomato plants because it actually mimics a hormone the tomato plant naturally has and it triggers the immune response so that your tomato leaf kind of toughens up and it makes it less susceptible to, to diseases and stuff. And when you hear stuff like that, you're like, yeah, right. What is this guy talking about? But I like to go on and look for research. So I look at a lot of, you know, um, colleges and research places. And that aspirin um, trick is well studied. And it only works for tomato plants. People then ask me, can you use it for all plants? But that's what I like to do. Is I kind of like to go and find a research from these potential myths or everything that you hear that's good for gardening and kind of track it down. And I'm doing a lot of that with soil too, you know, looking at how bad are chemical fertilizers, which if you, can't, if you don't need to use them, don't use them. But if you have an emergency and you use them once in your garden, you don't wreck your garden. And it's not like in the 50s where they would just put tons of these chemical fertilizers down and crush and just, just destroy their soil. So I like kind of reading and kind of filling in the gaps um, because I have a lot of people say, well, I used a chemical fertilizer um, on my, my food. Can I, is it, poison now do I have to get rid of it no you don't have to get rid of it but change over let's get you know over to compost and organic gardening as much as you can so that that's what I spend most of my time on is just trying to find the facts what do you do with the aspirin like do you crush it up in water or yeah so you're right you definitely want a 325 milligram um, tablet of aspirin and I think without looking at notes, it's the salicylic acid in aspirin. So you can't use ibuprofen or anything like that. It has to be like pure aspirin, no, no coating on it because that'll mess up your sprayer. Just the, the 325 milligrams of aspirin dropped in one gallon of water, dilute it, and you just spray the leaves down. Um, you know, I usually do it when the plants are kind of mid-high and because I keep a journal, I kind of know when the problem's rolling and just spray the leaves down. And you do that, you know, every two weeks or so, and it just triggers, um, I think it's called the SAR response, it's systemic, um, some sort of systemic response. Can't, can't pull it out of my head. But it, it, it mimics a hormone. Your plant thinks it's releasing a hormone because the leaf is being attacked by a pest or a disease, and it just toughens up the, the, the plant. And what you'll notice is sometimes the leaves look a little bit greener and look a little bit more kind of leathery and tough if you're spraying them regularly. It doesn't, you know, hurt the tomato plant, doesn't hurt anything. Um, it can only affect it for tomato plants. Golden me, seeds, me... listeners, tons of golden seeds. Yeah, it works. How about a favorite reading material, like a book or a magazine you could recommend? So I was looking uh, at what I have. I love just going to thrift stores and you can find gardening books, hardbacks, softbacks, you know, from the 70s and 80s for a dollar or two dollars. I love looking at the pictures. So that's one source of just expanding my garden and getting ideas. But I really like, because gardening is timeless, I like going on eBay or old bookstores and finding books you know, from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and just reading them and saying to myself, God, you know, people have been doing this for hundreds of years. There's no, there's no secret to it. And, and that's 
really what I enjoy the most. I even found a book, I think in the 40s, um, called How to Have a Chemical Garden. And it was all about the chemical fertilizers because they were new and novel back then. And I thought it was really interesting, you know, listening to how this person was so excited. And, you know, 80 years later, we realized, you know, it's not the best to be using because it can harm soil if you use and abuse it and all that kind of stuff. So I like kind of seeing that history from how other people wrote and, and what they wrote about. Again, I'm nodding my head because it's true. I had a guest on here who talked about like how excited his dad was when they came home and they were like, this is going to revolutionize the world and no more weeds. And it's going to be the greatest thing since, you know, sliced bread. And maybe that was even before sliced bread and, and just, um, you know, how we've, what we've learned and how we know how to move forward now. Right. Uh, right. Well, Gary, here comes my last question, which is kind of a doozy. Okay. If there's one change you'd like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? So the short answer is educate and teach because I think sometimes we reinvent, you know, is it a, you know, carbon free or carbon capture or beware of your, you know, the green footprint you're leaving, or is this green or is it organic or is it natural? And sometimes it's the same idea as just getting reset and restated. And you think, not you or me, but you think as a population that if you say, hey, do this, it's good for the environment, people are going to listen. Some do, but it's not to a person I think really can connect working in the earth, having a garden, thinking about why they have a green lawn instead of a green garden, they can begin to appreciate all those things. So I think those agendas are really, really important, but I think the way to do it is to get more people learning about how to have flower gardens, vegetable gardens, um, how to change lawns over to gardens. And when I retired from my mental health work, I found um, the Community Ecology Institute. They're a nonprofit organization, and one of their initiatives is a Freetown farm. It's 6.5 acres in Columbia, Maryland, and they're actually going to have their second anniversary. So I'm helping manage their greenhouse right now. But what they're all about is reaching the community of Columbia and Howard County and teaching people how to have gardens. They're working with um, native plants. They're working with um, conservation of water, all kinds of different things, but they're doing it at the person level so that it's not just people reading things, it's actually doing. And that, that's what I'm involved with. I think, you know, it goes to my book, it goes to my channel, is just help educate people about have a, how to have a good experience in the gardens. And then from that, I think that moves people towards composting, you know, being more organic, recognizing how they can, you know, make a, a greener planet at least that's what i hope i think you nailed it uh tell listeners how they find your rustic garden youtube channel and where they get your book and like how they connect with you before we so, okay it. so um you i have a seed shop it's called the rustedgarden.com and again it's r-u-s-t-e-d a lot of people think i say rustic um, but it's the rustedgarden.com you can find the book there. I do autograph it. Um, you can also find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. 
there's been a little bit delay because of COVID, but the book is out and about now. So you can get the book. Um, if you go to YouTube and you put in my name, Gary Polarchik, or you put in The Rusted Garden, um, that channel will pop up. I actually have two. So you may see one called My First Vegetable Garden. And as a side note, that is geared, I'm doing that with my brother, to first-time gardeners or relatively new gardeners. And he's a new gardener. Even though I've been doing this forever, he just got started. So it's his experience and my experience teaching new people. I'm also on Instagram under the Rusted Garden. And sometimes I'll be like in Home Depot and I'll say, hey, here's a sale. And I'll do little videos. Or when I find different kind of trellising materials that can be repurposed for the garden, I do videos on that. And then you can always contact me if you want. Um, any of my videos have all my contact information, but I can be um, contacted at therustedgarden at gmail.com if you have any questions. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. I was hoping we could talk a little bit because we just started a Grow Live YouTube channel. But as I told you in the pre-chat, uh, I have another interview starting in three minutes. So ah, I appreciate so much of what you said. My listeners are going to love this. Thank you. Get his book. Leave him a review on Amazon. Check out his YouTube channel. Check out him on Instagram. And um, it's a fantastic read. So thank you so much, Gary. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, well, I totally appreciate it. Well, I wish we could chat more, but you're probably like, I'm glad to go. So, and I do got to go. So have a great right. day and I'll send you the link when this is out. Okay. Thank I you. appreciate it. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Want to donate directly to the show? You can buy me a cup of coffee where your donation goes directly to support the Green Organic Garden Podcast it helps for thing, pay for things like hosting the MP3 files, maintaining the website. It's super easy. I'll put the link in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening. And remember, grow local.